While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. This is a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're going to kick right in. We're going to kick the door right in on this podcast with an email this week. It so rarely happens. I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. Uh, and it's not even... I, I don't want to sell the email short. It's fine. So <laughs> Joshua wrote in. He said, Andrew and Craig, I was listening to your podcast concerning Orange is the New Black. I noticed that you discussed A League of Their Own. And the, quote, other woman in the cast of that film that is not Gina, Rosie, and Madonna. And when you put other woman in quote, I'm editorializing right now. When you put other woman in quotes, it sounds like a weird relationship thing, which I hope we did not Im- imply. <laughs> I don't know. I think the only thing we implied is that we didn't know everybody who was in League of Their Own. That's fair. Uh, Joshua continues, the woman whose name you couldn't think of is Lori Petty. She recently starred in Orange is the New Black Season 2 and will be a recurring actor on Season 3. I thought this might be interesting to you, just based on the coincidence. Oh, dang. Who is she? She uh, was in the first episode of Season 2. I imagine she was in that, like, new prison. That Yeah, prison. yeah. Maybe, like, they talked to her on the airplane or something. Yeah, that that sounds right. Oh, she had the... she. I think her head might have been shaved or her haircut was really short. She was on the airplane talking to Piper. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. Um, okay. She, I have seen a decent number of Lori Petty's 90s films. I'm just going to run... I, How many? Yeah, hit me. What, what's she Have been? you ever seen Point Break? I've heard of it. It's the one where Keanu Reeves pretends to be a surfer. And everyone All right. Goes, oh, I do, sure, I you're do a know cop. that... That's a that's a Keanu role, it's like Keanu one of his joint. big pre-Matrix roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it feels like Bill and Ted, but it's a serious film. Um, <laughs> then she went right from that gem to A League of Their Own. Okay. Then starred in Free Willy. Okay, nice. Uh huh. Then she was in In the Army Now, which I think is a Pauly Shore film. Ew. Okay. Uh, and went right from that into an adaptation of the British cult comic book Tank Girl. Uh, and from there on out, I haven't heard of any of the other movies she made. <laughs> so, I get I, I Free Willy's probably the peak. Like, how big of a role was that for her? Oh, she was. The, I mean, she was like the female lead in Free Willy. Okay, female. I think she worked at the female. aquarium. Or not an aquarium, whatever, the water park where they kept Willie mm-hmm. against his will. <laughs> <laughs> the place where he was freed freed from, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and she helped the kid free him, I think. So that was probably the peak. Like, League of Their Own is close. It's like near peak. And then Free Willie's the peak. With point and break, then, a distant third. And then her career, like, jumps over a little kid, like a whale escaping from a zoo. <laughs> Never to be seen again. <laughs> uh, so thanks, Josh, for writing us for writing in and uh, letting us know that we totally know who Lori Petty is. Yeah, totally. Uh, we just ha- didn't think hard enough about it, which 
as some of you may know, is a, is a running theme on this show. I think hard about everything that I say on this show. <laughs> is that true? Uh, yet. Wait, let me think about it. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> so every week, uh, we don't just read emails. We read books. And this week, I read a book. What book did you read? I actually read a play. Surprise. I tricked you. <laughs> Do plays come in books? Sometimes. Okay. You say uh, so. I read a play called The Hairy Ape uh, by Eugene O'Neill. All right. Eugene O'Neill is the name I've heard. Yeah. Where'd you hear of him? Um, From that theater that is named for him. There is a theater named after him. Why do you yeah. suppose they named a theater after him, Andrew? Because he was really good at plays. He was pretty good at plays. <laughs> I know that his full name is Eugene Gladstone O'Neill. Oh, which what is a wicked cool. middle name. <laughs> I wonder if that's that's not his mother's maiden name, so I don't know where that comes from. I don't care. It's pretty Just, good. It's good. It's good enough that it's there. You're into it. All right. Yeah, that's great. Um, um, I know. Okay, I know that he has a theater named after him. I know that um, Long Day's Journey into Night, right, is uh huh, probably his biggest play. But he wrote a ton of them. He wrote a bunch of plays. He was really prolific. I know he wrote. Like in the period between 1920 and 1943, he wrote 20 long plays and a bunch of short ones. And from my understanding, he took a break in like, he took like a 10-year break after he got the Nobel, which he received in 1936. And he didn't start writing, like, he didn't turn churn out any big plays until a little bit later in his and life. I guess, like, if you're gonna take a break, I think after you win the <laughs> Nobel, like, you can... You can say, "Okay, I've earned this. I can, I can just rest on my laurels for a minute. I can shine my medal. I am whatever. a laureate Is resting Nobel on my laurels." A, a medal. Yeah. Okay. Polish the medal. Just sit back. Uh huh. Mm-hmm. You're so far ahead of everybody else that you don't need to stress for a while. Yeah, that sounds about right. I think um, most athletes don't do that enough. <laughs> most athletes are like, "Hey, I won the big thing. I'm going to stick around for five more years until it gets painful to watch me." But f- yeah, for like every sport, but golf and maybe stupid baseball, <laughs> like you only have like five years where you can be good at something and then your body starts to fall apart. Well, since you don't watch stupid baseball, you don't know that there are plenty of dudes who stick around longer than they should. Oh, I know. Through several. inertia. <laughs> yeah. It just don't. People keep paying them to show up. <laughs> And that's all they do is just show up. Anyway. Um, um, but, okay, he was he wrote a bunch of plays. He was really good at plays, but he he didn't start out writing plays, right? Like, he came to that only after, like, a tumultuous childhood and young adulthood, as yes. I understand. Yes, well, he, his family, he comes from a theater family. His dad uh, yes. was a f- pretty successful matinee idol you might call at the turn of the century um named james o'neill and he acted in plays with edwin forrest and edwin booth brother of a famous assassin um wait who you john wilkes booth (laughs) (laughs) i know come on now i knew that uh so his father would would tour a lot and uh 
there's an older brother that Eugene had named Edmund, who is uh, his oldest brother's named James, and his he had a brother named Edmund who died of a measles outbreak uh, while Eugene's father was on tour, and his mm-hmm. mother seemed to never forgive him or herself for that. Uh, his mother also had a morphine problem, and some of this you may know if you've read Long Day's Journey into Night, which is considered probably his most autobiographical play, mm-hmm. uh, and was actually published posthumously a couple years after O'Neill's death in 53, I think. Or it was published in 56. He died in 53. Um, yeah, it seems like he really like embodies the the artist who uses his really really terrible childhood and his like really awful experiences to fuel his art. <laughs> yeah, in in ways that I think became far more personal later in his career and that's when I that's when I discovered him not later in his career but like the later works are, is what I was introduced to him with. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um I think my first O'Neill play that I read was Long Day's Journey so it kind of started at the top. Um but the earlier stuff is a little more experimental. We'll talk about that as we get into the Harry Ape because it was written in 23, I believe. 22. 22. Okay. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and uh, But he did draw, even in his early plays, he drew on his experience uh, working on ships. He was in, he left uh, his family uh, in the early 1900s and started working on boats. Um and he ended up joining the International uh, Workers, oh God, IWW, what is it called? Oh no. <laughs> it stands for something pretty important. And I, I don't know, I'm not, I can't help you out. Oh no, it's, oh, it's escaping my, oh no. Are you <laughs> Industrial Workers oh, of the World? Thank you. Oh. Jeez. I was waiting for you to Google it and you just seemed like you... <laughs> no, I had a window with... I could see like the rivers of flop sweat streaming <laughs> down your head. I had a window with it open and it had the text in it. I just was scrolling like a madman. <laughs> Find it. The Industrial <laughs> Workers of the World, um, which was an early like union uh, for that class of uh, employee, you know, um, laborers mm-hmm. and which is largely it's not gone today but it's very very small uh, in in the thousands or tens of thousands of members in the united states contrasted with the like hundreds of thousands to perhaps millions of people in the afl-cio mm-hmm. um, but so we worked with them for a little while and that actually factors directly into the hairy ape which we'll talk about a little bit later and he wrote a lot of his early plays had to do with either sailors or took place on ships um, or people who worked in that industry. So he seems to to have kind of a lifelong love-hate relationship with the sea. Mm-hmm. He probably ran away to it. I'm, I'm editorializing and, and making <laughs> assumptions right now, but he probably ran away to it based on family troubles um, and perhaps, you know, just concern, like driven out of his house basically as a young man not wanting to go into theater but yeah because like as a as a young man like well he was born in a hotel room his the, his to, to give you yeah. a an idea of how like unstable his life was and how much they traveled around born in a hotel room on broadway <laughs> yeah so <laughs> uh, i think you're the son of an actor if you're born in a hotel room in times square 
but then you also know that you worked in theater if your famous last words are, I knew it, I knew it, born in a hotel room, died in a hotel room, which is exactly what happened. <laughs> I need to start working on my last words like now. Yeah, you got to plan if that I'm out. Gonna, if I'm going to do good ones, do I got to be thinking about it. Do you have one? Do you, could, could you like bring it back like, born in Ohio, died in Ohio, I knew it, I knew it. <laughs> But you weren't actually... What, if, what would I have to do to die in Ohio? Why would I do that? You would just go myself. there, and then as soon as you cross the border, the boredom would get you. It would be cool to do like a pun-based okay. one, I think. One that would end up in my Wikipedia article. Would you? Would it, something about being very cunning? Or... No, no, that's dumb. Okay. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get back to what us. Are you, what are you going to say? Oh, I'm... I'm Craig getting dead. Oh, no. Yep, that's exactly what. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> that's awful. Whew, okay, on. so speaking of awful, what else is going on with Eugene O'Neill's life? <laughs> so he ended up in a sanatorium in 1912 and 13 with tuberculosis. Um, and then he kind of committed himself from there to writing plays for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. And he spent a year at Harvard, decided it wasn't worth his time, and left. It was Princeton. No, he ended up... Uh, it was Harvard. The biography I'm I, reading on eoneal.com says Princeton. Why did I write Harvard down? I don't know. Oh, man, I'm all he, over the place. He attended Princeton University for one year, 1906-07. Why did I write down Harvard? I don't know. It's Freudian slip. I don't... Yeah, maybe that works. I don't know what what slip that would be. I'm not sure what that says about how you feel about Boston. Perhaps, perhaps. Um, so then he moved uh, from there and started working uh, in the actual theater community. Um, he was writing short plays that got produced at the Provincetown Players in the late 19 teens, and that's actually where a lot of his early plays from the 1920s came from. Harry Ape got its premiere uh, at Provincetown. That's his up in Cape Cod. Mm-hmm. And he won his first of four Pulitzers uh, in 1920 with his Broadway debut, uh, Bound, what, oh God, I messed it up, Beyond the Horizon. <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I was thinking about Eastbound for Cardiff, which is one of his earlier plays. Okay. Um, he would later win for Anna Christie, Long Day's Journey, and Strange Interlude as well. Okay. Um that's his like theatrical career. He'd married three times. Each marriage got longer. The last one lasted until he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had three kids, and two. And his sons committed suicide. Man. And he disowned his daughter for marrying Charlie Chaplin. <laughs> All right. And then he moved with his last wife to California. And he started getting really ill and had almost like a... He he was having Parkinson's-like symptoms, even though it ended up being something not that specific. Right, Um, yeah. He, he like, he died one of those tragic, like, Twilight Zone deaths. Yes. Because he, like, for the last decade of his life, he he basically couldn't write anything because his, you know, his shaking was so bad. Yeah, so... And he tried, like, dictation for a while, and he found that it was just not conducive to, to what he was trying to do, so... And that's and that's when he starts writing his most personal work as well. Um, yeah. So um, I know Iceman Cometh is one from that period, right? Yeah. So is um, Moon for the Misbegotten, mm-hmm. and there are two plays whose names escape me because they don't 
really factor into his larger canon. Like, did you just close your eyes when you did your research for this one? Or? <laughs> I think there's just so much that I keep blanking. That's there's like true. Yeah, a lot going on in my head. And and mm-hmm. O'Neill is one of the first playwrights that I read and and felt a strong affinity for. So like, the information comes in and out of my brain, um, a lot. If that makes sense. Okay, sure. Not that that makes any sense as to why I can't remember the notes I took for the show today. <laughs> <laughs> Do you you don't even have to remember notes. Just read read what notes you took. Well, that would explain every grade I ever got. <laughs> um, but Moon from the Misbegotten is definitely related to Long Day's Journey. I believe it's Jamie, uh, who's modeled after his older brother, grows up Mm -hmm. and is in moon for the misbegotten and then there's also a play which is it's like funny how often it gets cited as this called ah wilderness which always gets called his only well-known comedy or the only comedy he ever wrote uh i don't know it seems like it's like the funny version of long day's journey or at least like (laughs) the happy version okay so i want to get around to reading that at some point um because i don't know what that's about so yeah, that's I don't know. What else is there? Anything else about him that we need to talk about? Anything I else I messed up? I think that covers the basics, right? Like tragic early life that informed his very very prolific career, and then a tragic end of his life. Yeah, he got a lot done though. He is. Oh yeah, no. If he, if, yeah, <laughs> he is our like drama laureate as a country. Like he's the guy who kind of put us on the map. Sure. Um, there were folks who came before and folks who've come after, uh, but he was the guy. And it, I think it's interesting, too, like, he is revered in a way um, in the theater community that is very strong, but because our country has such a, like, invested interest in other things, I don't think it's, like, there's a Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in Waterford, Connecticut, which is, like, where... His family's cottage was that is kind of the basis of long days. And mm-hmm. if you don't know, if you're not studying theater, you might not ever hear about that. You know, um, it's not like we don't roll them out in the same way that like certain European countries kind of roll their dramatists out, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah, yeah. You study him in school, maybe, but I don't even. Did you read him in, in school? Um, I don't think I ever came across any of this stuff, no, but I mean, I, I didn't read many plays that weren't originally in Greek, so. <laughs> okay, yeah. fair enough, fair enough. Uh, let's move on to the hairy ape. Yeah, okay, tell me what, who's this hairy ape? His name is Yank. Good name, Robert, just Yank? Like Robert Cher? Smith, uh, okay. but his real name is Yank. At one point in the play, when someone asks him what his name is, he goes, it's Yank. They're like, really? And he goes, well, wait, I've been going my yank for so long. I, it's Bob Smith. That's what it is. <laughs> Bob Smith. Uh, and he is working on a transatlantic liner in like the furnace room. He's like the okay. foreman of a line of dudes who shove coal into furnaces. <laughs> um, and the... The setup of the play is that he feels like he belongs there, and there there are there's an old Irish guy named Paddy who complains about how in the good old days when you worked on a ship that meant being up in the air with the sun and the sails and the wind, and this is just hell, and we're we're on this boat, and everyone 
no one even sees us working and all we do is sweat and hurt ourselves um and well, this would have been um i guess i don't know that much about boats but given like early <laughs> 1900s that's probably when this whole steamship thing was still like relatively new like new enough that you got a lot of hand wringing about well this is like the new titanic. technology this is like yeah. the titanic this is a maybe what eight years after titanic yeah when this when was when was the titanic titanic sank in 1912 okay so you've got these big so like a decade after yeah so these things have been going for a while it's it's definitely we are into the industrial revolution but it's Mm. still new enough that there are people around who are like this is not good for us this is bad uh so there's patty there's yank and there's a guy named long um who is (laughs) (laughs) complaining about he seems to have a, a like a real strong sense of class and how that they are in the working class, they're in the lower class, and that they need to get politically organized and do something about it. And what does Yank... Yank says something to him that I think is really funny. Uh, he says, Oh, Nick's on that uh, Salvation Army Socialist bull. Get a soapbox. Hire a hall. <laughs> uh, if you start reading this book, or this play, rather, you'll recognize instantly that these characters are written in dialect like Mm -hmm. one of the funnest things to read ever um so like when yank says you it's spelled y-u-h um or when he says skirt which is his word for women he says skoit (laughs) s-k-o-i-t all right uh so that's (laughs) that's kind of how that goes so the whole first scene is him arguing for this life that he's living and he's loving it. He he feels like he belongs here, right? Okay. Um and he he says that he he rouses up all the all the other men working on his crew to kind of like quiet down the old Irishman. And he says that, you know, we're the steel that drives this boat. We are the force behind it all. Um this is where we belong. This is our our life. Uh great. And then it goes south from there. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, this woman named Mildred, who I believe is the daughter of an important steel magnet, uh, magnate, excuse me. Um, <laughs> steel I always, magnet. I always mess that up. Be more specific, yeah. <laughs> uh, she is doing kind of work with the lower classes, um, and she decides that she's going to visit the the coal workers on this boat that she's taking. And when she goes down there, uh, they're working really hard and they're slaving away uh, while the, the engineers ringing the bell to make them work even harder. And Yank's thrown this big fit where even in the stage directions, uh, O'Neill has specified that he's beating his chest like a gorilla. Okay. Uh, Yank turns around and sees Mildred and she calls him a filthy beast and faints and they have to get her out of there. And then he takes great offense to that. Ladies all the time be fainting. <laughs> In the 1920s, uh, I think you were either a strong, uh, you were fighting for, you know, suffrage, and you were a, an activist, or you were fainting. I think those were the two options, right? Yeah, like they had very delicate constitutions back then. Well, I think we, and by we, I mean, uh, the male establishment. <laughs> I think we tried to tell them they were delicate. 
in ways well, yeah, you know, in ways right, that suited our own purposes for self. Well, I reasons. also I don't know that ladies in real life fainted quite so often as ladies in fiction yes. tend to faint. Yes, like, that's fair. Like a stiff wind, a stiff wind makes them faint. Like, <laughs> they're like those goats. <laughs> Their knees just lock up and they just go yeah, down. They just fall they're over. they're frightened and they're ah. My goodness gracious! <laughs> I thought you were gonna make a goat noise. No, he's in the twenties. Ah! and then they just fall over. Welcome it's to the twenties. Good, good goat noise. It's, it's, well, the goats that sound like men. I wasn't bleeding like a normal goat. <laughs> Come on now, you've seen those goats. Okay, so lady faints because Yank freaked her out. What does that do to Yank? He goes nuts, and he decides uh, that he's been insulted, and Long kind of eggs him on. And says, yeah, these people think they're better than us. It's not just her. It's everyone. And there's this really cool scene where uh, they're all in the like the bunk room of the ship. Mm-hmm. And throughout the ship, throughout the, the play, there are characters who are just kind of, they're not named characters. They're almost like a, for lack of a better word, a Greek chorus of just like workers or pedestrians or whatever. And the play just refers to them as voices and then gives them a bunch of kind of choral dialogue. Mm-hmm. And there's this building tension where uh, Yank is trying to think about what happened, and O'Neill like specifies that he thinks in the exact posture of Rodan's The Thinker, <laughs> or as best as he can approximate. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "Guys, leave me alone! I'm trying to think." And uh, the group res- repeats after him, "Think." And this is the stage direction. The word has a brazen metallic quality as if their throats were phonograph horns. It is followed by a chorus of hard barking laughter. (laughs) And then that that exact stage direction repeats like six times after a bunch of like really kind of meaningful words. Like Mm -hmm. Patty says that he's upset with the girl because he's in love with her. And they all go love. And then they all sound like phonographs. And then uh, Long says that we should use law to, to help ourselves and save ourselves. And they go, law, and they all sound like phonographs. And he goes, we got to get, we uh, as voters and citizens, we can force the bloody governments. And they go, governments, and they, they all sound like phonograph horns. And then he says, we're free and equal in the sight of God. And they go, God, and then they're all <laughs> mocking God. And then Yank tells him to shut up. Uh, I would want to tell him to shut uh, yeah. up. Like, <laughs> Come on, guys. <laughs> Uh, so then they all start riling Yank up and saying that she basically called him a hairy ape, a dirty ape. Um, and when he says, is that what she called me? Patty says, she looked at it. She looked it at you if she didn't say the word itself, <laughs> which is pretty great. I like that. Uh, so then he decides that he will be a hairy ape and he's going to go up there and give her one and... Tell her what's what and probably beat her up or kill her. I'm give not her sure. one what? Like, you know, give her one. Like, like, pow, bang, zoom, straight to the moon, yeah. like that yeah. kind of. Yeah. Okay, and that, the violent sense. Yes, in the very violent sense. <laughs> he already made her faint. I don't, I feel like you got his. Uh, well, he's not even just going to punch her. He says, I'll fix her, let her come down again, and I'll fling her into furnace. She'll move den. She won't shiver in nothing den. Speed, that'll be her. She'll belong then. He's going to make her part of the ship. <laughs> okay. uh, and all the guys go, hey, that's a little too far. Maybe, <laughs> maybe Yank, maybe we shouldn't. Uh, oops. 
and they all like pile down on him and like beat him up and restrain him and so even in that sense he's lost the crew Mm -hmm. um so then the the play makes an abrupt shift and we're on the street we're on fifth avenue in manhattan okay like how did we instinctively my director's brain is like wait a second o'neill we were on a boat for four scenes and now you want to be on fifth avenue and you want it to be very specifically like we want to be able to see all the shops and how crass and commercial they are. So all those like, you know, those lines in Charlie Brown Christmas where they complain about how commercial everything is. Right. That's been going on for ages. <laughs> of course it has. Ever since people owned things, people have been complaining about people owning things. It's such a cliche that it's a cliche to say that it's a cliche. And I think that's a cliche, too. We're, just, <laughs> we're lots of layers deep here. <laughs> yeah that's that's pretty true uh so then it goes it uh he decides that he's gonna find her on the street and beat her up or something um, okay and long is with him saying no 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 uh i have to you have to make it about more than her this is about a class issue he says i want to awaken your bloody class consciousness <laughs> <laughs> and uh yank doesn't really believe that that's that that matters and there's this really kind of wonderfully expressionistic moment where all these people in uh you know hoity-toity outfits and nice clothes kind of walk on stage and they're walking down the street and he like literally tries to beat them up and like punch them and knock them down and Mm -hmm. they don't react to him like at one point he punches a dude in the face and nothing happens um and so you're not supposed to be taking it literally if that makes, they're not like super people, right. but, uh, but then one guy bumps into him, makes that guy late for the bus and he calls the cops and all these cops show up and <laughs> beat up Yang. Uh, then he goes to jail and all the people in jail call him crazy. Um, cause he's spouting all this stuff about being called an ape and they think he's nuts. And that's when he hears about the IWW. The Wobblies, mm-hmm. the industrial workers of the world. And he realizes that this woman is the daughter of the steel magnet. And he needs to magnet. get even he, he needs to get even with steel. So he's coming around. He's not steel anymore. Steel's keeping him down. Okay. And it's even keeping him in his cage in prison. Uh so he gets all wound up and all the all the prisoners don't like that he's making all this noise. And then he like literally almost tears out the door to his cage he's like becoming full-on ape and he's almost ripping out the 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 prison bars yeah o'neill seems really to be driving that home yes it is we'll go back through that kind of like do you remember what the play is called (laughs) what is how does it get described like this uh as he comes to the breaking out, he seizes one bar with both hands and putting his feet, his two feet up against the others so that his position is parallel to the floor like a monkey's, he gives a great wrench backwards. Uh, and then the prison guard shows up and hits him with a hose. All right. Sprays water on him. <laughs> Fair enough. Then he goes to the IWW and he thinks that they're this radical organization that is like blowing up uh, capitalist enterprises which was some of the rhetoric that people read him from the newspaper. Mm-hmm. And they're actually just like, you know, a union office trying to okay. trying to get the work done. Uh-huh. And he gets all upset at them for not being violent enough and says that he's going to go do things his own way. And they 
assume that he's from the government spying on them to union bust them and get them to admit that that's what they do. So they beat him up and kick him out the door. Uh, and a cop tells him that he has to get off the street. And he says, say, where do I go from here? And the cop says, go to hell. <laughs> Jeez. It sounds like Gant can't catch a break. Like, he keeps getting thrown out on his butt everywhere he goes. Yep. Would you like to... You, you want to hear about how this play ends, Andrew? Yeah, I would like to hear about All how right, it spoilers ends. For, does, it, does it end badly? It doesn't end well. Uh, <laughs> All right. So, spoilers for Harry Ape, I guess. He goes to the zoo. He walks up. He walks up to a gorilla cage. Like literally, there's a gorilla in a cage. Does he just like at this point? Does he look at the audience and point and say, "Get it"? No, no, he does not. <laughs> it's expressionism. We'll come back to that. Um, but he goes up to a gorilla, and he starts talking to the gorilla, and he's getting the gorilla all wound up because he's getting all wound up. And so he picks the lock on the gorilla's cage, in an attempt to like you know, turn the gorilla loose on society and get back at society. And then he says, uh, come on, brother, and he lets the gorilla out. He says, shake the secret grip of our order. Like he's kind of like making a joke that he's going to shake uh-huh. hands with the gorilla. And the gorilla hugs him and breaks his rib cage and hugs him to death and then tosses him in the cage and walks away. And then... Yank. uh Yank kind of talks to no one in particular, saying that he is, you know, ladies and gents, step forward and take a slant at the one and only one and original hairy ape from the wilds of, and then he dies. So we don't, he does, he's not from anywhere. He doesn't belong, Andrew. He doesn't belong. I get it. And he's like an ape. (laughs) He's been like an ape from the beginning. Like, I know. O'Neill is nothing if not a stage direction machine. Like each, each scene, I almost called it a chapter because it feels that dense at the beginning, is like three paragraphs long of very specific visual directions, um, in ways that I don't think are are feasible all the time. So he's not he's not leaving a lot up to whoever is putting on this this production. Like he has pretty specific ways that he wants everything to be done. Yes, 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 yes. And I think it's interesting to note that because he's writing in the at this point he's writing in the early twenties. I double checked the jazz singer doesn't happen for five more years. So mm-hmm. we're not even like movies exist, but we don't even we don't have talkies yet. So like theater is still the medium for performance of impact i would say sure. mm-hmm. um so even with a play like this that is really rich with symbolism and is should not be considered realistic in any way mm-hmm. he's got very detailed very specific authorial intent in all of his stage directions um, when he describes the prison he wants it to go a diagonal row of cells that you know, continues off into infinity. Like, okay, great. Yeah. I'll whip that right up for you. (laughs) Like, I don't know how you begin. I mean, there, there are probably very visually stunning ways to approach this play. Um, but you have to get inventive and I, I think you have to lean into how expressionistic it is. From the other stuff of O'Neill's that you've read, like, is he typically so specific and so lavish in his, Mm -hmm. In his window dressing or whatever it is mm-hmm. that this is. Uh, if you read, if you go back to Long Day's Journey, he basically describes his family. Like, he gives full-on, 
like facial feature instruction about what each character looks like in the stage directions. And the way he does that in that play uh, kind of tells you a bit more about who the characters are. So that can be useful to an actor or a director, even if you don't end up casting a lookalike of his family. But he is very, very particular. Um, There are shots. I call them shots because it does feel almost cinematic, even though we're we're still in the in the nascent era of cinema at this point where he wants the when the men are shoveling coal into the furnaces when they bend over you need to be able to see the light you know creating shadows in their glistening backs and you're like oh my god (laughs) (laughs) it's it's a little much obviously um and i i think i don't know it's coming it's a direct reaction to theatrical realism Mm -hmm. that's the turn of the 20th century like Chekhov and even even looking at you could consider Wilde and and Shaw some form of realism even though their language is heightened you know mm-hmm. there's nothing supernatural happening in those in all of those plays most of those plays um and they owe a lot to Ibsen as well but even Ibsen is is not a naturalist he's he's a realist um and this is far more expressionistic. This is like, it's both political and expressionist. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> it feels very. It, which, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of more questions, but like O'Neill is, he's so explicit yes. in the way mm-hmm. that he sets everything up that he like. I don't want to accuse him of like not trusting the audience to be intelligent enough to get it, but. He doesn't he doesn't imply things very subtly like he he definitely has this he he's got he wants to make you feel a specific way about all this stuff. Well, I I think that's I think that type of like subtle question raising is something that happens post O'Neill, if that, you know, Um, or at least post this point in his career, because even even plays that came before it, you look at something like uh, Chekhov or or even books that we were reading from that from that late 19th century era, you're going into the mind of an individual or, or you're dealing with kind of subtler subject matter. Mm-hmm. But this is also like early 20th century theater. There's plenty of political theater happening. And while this is kind of indicting everyone <laughs> in that it even takes pot shots at an organization, or at least from this character's point of view, an organization that O'Neill was a part of, for mm-hmm. not doing enough, uh, it has a very strong message, um, even though it kind of casts a wide net. Uh, and I think it's it's a little heightened, more than a little heightened, for that purpose. It feels like it feels Greek in in a number of ways. Um, specifically, the the device of all of these other voices that hap- that are on. Like I have no idea. How many people you absolutely need to do this play? There's, it's not spelled out because there's just dudes on stage all the time. So obviously, you. I mean, do you, are there any other characters who really factor into it all the time, other than Yank? Like, it sounds like he's playing off of other people a lot, but you don't have. It's his story. A really strong, like, secondary character or anything like that. No, the closest would be Long, because uh, he's in a couple scenes, but even then. He's there for Yank to disagree with, um, mm-hmm. and 
you know, even just looking at the scene two, I was like, oh, Mildred's coming in. This is going to be, see, we'll see where this goes. Nope, Mildred's gone. Once she faints, you never see her again. Um, once they leave the boat, you never see Patty again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and once he gets to New York, you never see Long again. You just, he's further and further removed from any sort of context that he previously had 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 um so it's this ringing ringing indictment of industrialism i think and the the alienation effect of labor um and how capitalism can can drive a man from himself uh, yeah and from having any sense of belonging which is a very individualistic thing what one i was reading up on on trying to make sure i could differentiate expressionism from other forms of of art of the time mm-hmm. and that was one of the definitions that kind of rang true for this play specifically is that it holds an individual an individual's experience uh as kind of the spine of whatever piece of art you're creating mm-hmm. especially in drama it's not about any sort of objective truth it's about what's happening to this character so I think about that, the scene when he is like walking through a throng of people on the street trying to interact with them and they're, all they say is, I beg your pardon, and they don't, they don't even react to him. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put that in a more naturalist play, it, would f- it wouldn't have the impact because it would just feel weird. And I think it, out of context now, it's even weird to talk about, you know, because um, it is so heightened and poetic in a way. Yeah, um, he works with symbols in ways that, if you don't set it up right, I think can feel really arch, um, and can <laughs> like, oh, I get it. Like even like you were, I get it. He's an ape. I get it. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if you set that up from the beginning, and then if you really lay into that at the beginning, which he does, then you're looking for that connection throughout the piece. Right. Yeah. Like if you really want to drive home the ape thing. Uh, you know, at the from the outset, then every time the ape thing comes up again, you maybe pay more attention to what exactly is happening and and um, how it compares to the other times when he's done that. So yeah, I, I guess I get that. Um, I wonder. I mean, he's he's making the stage direction so like big and so noticeable, probably t- so that it drives that home to the audience too, who's not like sitting there reading the stage directions as the as the show goes yeah it's you you better not miss this if you're making this play if you are staging right. this play you want all of the visual information that i'm giving you to impact the audience just as much as it's impacting you reading it right now mm-hmm. um and that's that's something that i think is really smart about o'neill's work because that doesn't mean that he is forgetting about language because he's obviously interested in in vernacular and how these particular characters talk. The first line of the play is, Gif me trink, dare you. <laughs> what do you think that means, Andrew? Uh, give me a drink. Yeah, give me a drink there. Yeah, um, give me a drink. But he also opens with three paragraphs, in one of which he says, uh, all the men themselves should resemble those pictures in which the appearance of Neanderthal man is guessed at. <laughs> Like, we're not met okay okay we get it yeah right. and so you're supposed to it's not in, in political theater there's no that, that subtlety is not your friend because you're supposed to get it 
And if you don't, then the playwright failed, right? Right. You wouldn't yeah. make a protest sign that was kind of fuzzy. Yeah, or that was hard to understand. Um, I'm trying. I'm trying to think of one like a jokey one now, <laughs> <laughs> but I can't. You don't want people to need glasses to read your protest sign. Okay, that's all right. I, I was thinking more like figuratively, but you were thinking like literally. You have to make sure that your typeface is like clear and readable. Yes, <laughs> so that people get your point and that your kerning is good. Okay. And that you didn't use Comic Sans. And you didn't spell anything wrong. Come oh, on, man. Um, I don't... It's hard... Because, it, it, like, all of Yank's stuff, like, all the stuff that he does, it seems like it would be more acceptable if it was less extreme. Like, if he wanted to affect social change but didn't want to do it by exploding things, like, maybe he would find a place <laughs> to fit in. Is that... Is, like, O'Neill saying something about that? Or is he just, like, exaggerating Yank's qualities to get his point across? Or, like, I'm leaning toward it being the second, but I don't know if... That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because in the in the first scene, you come away thinking, all right, Yank's the man. All right, he gets it. He's, he's decided how he's going to live his life. And he's, you know, deriving purpose from his work. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. And then... He gets personally insulted by a thing that is factually true about him. Like, he is kind <laughs> of a monster. Uh, he is aggressive and loud and acts ape-like. It's, his work has made him that way. And he gets he, he is insulted by it. And he's, his personal vendetta becomes part of, you know, butts up against the system, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I, I think there's a way for O'Neill to not fully like uh, endorse Yank's actions without condemning him all the same. I think he's in between because he's not a great guy. He tries to beat up a bunch of strangers. He tries to mm-hmm. throw a woman in a furnace. He, he wants to give a lady one or whatever <laughs> it is. That... <laughs> he wants to fix her, right? Oh yeah, that's. And what he calls was. them scoits all the time, which is weird. <laughs> Um, but he uh, he isn't necessarily wrong when he when he talks about how the system can't like the systems are grinding him down and that and I guess that's that's what the point of all the other ancillary characters is is to show that like this stuff is unjust and it does suck like Yank is not responding to it in a way that is great but that doesn't mean that these people are right to like faint when they see when they see somebody shoveling coal or whatever it is well and he's pretty he's pretty um strong in in his hatred may not be the right word but in the way that he condemns the upper classes in this play as well like Mm -hmm. labor unions have kind of and in the time latched onto this play and i think for good reason um but it does paint the upper classes as as really snotty and and dismissive of this whole enterprise um and the scene with mildred when she is on the deck of the ship with her mother or no her aunt excuse me talking about how she's going to go talk to these people who work in the bowels of the ship and help them uh the aunt mm-hmm. just keeps calling her a poser <laughs> Like over and over again, calls her a poser, 
and she's described as delicate and frail and like a ghost uh, and she can't handle it when she gets down there so i think there's a condemnation there of of the the activist advocate mentality that can't actually right. stand to be with the people that they want to help yeah yeah, well, yeah. which is its own kind of double it you see that you see that today where it's it's easier to send money to a thing or just yeah, pass along yeah. an email or something we talked about this some last week where it's like easier to tweet or to like amazon payments somebody 10 bucks than it is to actually like go and do like real work oh yeah like in the tr- in the trenches oh yeah um the system is is set up or a lot of systems are set up where that's easier for you and you don't know if your impact is good is like enough but you're so far removed from it that it doesn't matter yeah you know? not not to like condemn people who do that stuff either but no it's it's just calling out i think this place specifically is is calling that out in terms of um whether or not that is effective yeah uh, i think it's just saying like if you really really cared about this issue and you aren't just a tourist in caring about this issue <laughs> there's a whole lot more that you can do yes yes yeah. yes um is there anything like any last any closing thoughts that you have as we as we wind down here um i think i've been kind of talking about it off and on the whole show it was refreshing to read an o'neill that is feels experimental in tone and style okay. um, having not read one of his plays that kind of stretched that if you what i'm used to and and i've read desire into the elms i've read uh, i think i've read iceman cometh and i've read long days um, i've seen a couple other of his plays they are rich with symbolism but it's it's carried in the dialogue mostly um, mm-hmm. and that feels poetic in the way that you know Shakespeare can be poetic or Tennessee Williams can be poetic. Um, but when you, when you read something like this, it's far more heightened. Uh, the visuals are, are striking, even though I, I'm not even looking at anything, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think his use of, I think his use of the choral voices is fascinating. Um, and a device that feels very epic uh, and very, a thing that would happen in a theater and, and wouldn't translate to film or TV in the same way, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That kind yeah, of yeah. man against the group, which kind of reinforces Yank versus society at all, at all costs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I find it sad that he doesn't get to complete the sentence at the end of the play that he's from the wilds of, and then he dies. Like he's not from anywhere. I think that's, yeah. I don't know. I think that's the that's something that we see a lot. Like, what was that? Is it the metamor? When when was Metamorphosis written? When did Kafka write that? Oh, geez. Is um, that around this time? I want to say it was like the forties. No, no, totally wrong. It was nineteen fifteen. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're in that milieu, right? We're in the, I do this thing for a living because it's all I got, and this is my life, and I'm alienated from every aspect of my life. Um, and it's really brutal. This this play in particular is really messed up, and every scene ending, every scene after he leaves the ship just ending with people hauling off and beating him or 
dragging him somewhere, spraying him with a hose. It's, yeah. I don't know. It's a good it's a good play. I like it. Good. I don't feel like I just kind of talked a lot. No, that's fine. Um, if you want to talk <laughs> at us a lot, you can do it with, via our email address, which is overduepod at gmail.com. We also have Twitter and Facebook accounts set up at twitter.com slash overduepod and facebook.com slash overduepod. Um, usually we're more active on Facebook, but we do try to do announcements and updates on both when we have something to say. So Yeah, a couple people reached yeah. out to us this week. Um, Robert was using us as a hangover cure, it seems, which I appreciate. Um, How did that go? Like, was it? I don't know. We need to. I don't know. He just said that he was going to listen to us for the hangover. So hopefully it worked. Well, report back. (laughs) Uh, Terry, our our pal from Nebraska, woo Nebraska. Um, He's actually in Philly, but he was trumpeting Nebraska. He said we improved train rides. Uh, We got an iTunes review, which we'll talk about in just a second. That thanked us for not being afraid to make fun of books, which I liked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That was from C Doodles ninety two. Thanks, Sea Doodles. Uh, and Eric found the origin of Struck Me Funny, I think, from episode 14, um, which was The Crucible. And I have a good Struck Me Funny from this book, Andrew. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty intermittent segment. So. <laughs> uh, at one point, Yank, describing Mildred's reaction to him, says, She lamped me like she was seeing something broke loose from the menagerie. Christ, you'd ought to seen her eyes. <laughs> Lamped me. I really like that. Yeah. I like that almost as much as um, when she looked something at him. Yeah. He also says those are good turns of phrase. When someone's telling something to him and he wants to know if it's the truth, he says, is is that straight goods? I like that one a lot. I like straight goods a lot. I think that's one that you could probably work into your vernacular if you really wanted to. Yes. Like like you're going to give somebody the straight goods. Let me give you the straight goods. Oh, man. Is that straight goods? (laughs) <laughs> They're selling three dollar sandwiches today. Is that straight goods? That one, I I think, feels a little more contrived. But we can we we work on it. I, well, I if I was, I w- I wouldn't have to say that first part about the sandwiches if I was actually in a conversation with someone telling me about three dollar sandwiches, Andrew. Oh, okay. Then I would just you could say, just be like straight goods. Is that straight goods. That's straight yeah. goods. Yeah, straight goods. That's a good nickname. You can start a sandwich shop called Straight. Oh goods. my god. <laughs> Well, I'm going to go buy that domain name, and in the meantime, you can head over to our domain at OverduePodcast.com, where we have uh, all the current and back episodes of the show, all the current episodes, like this one. All the episodes. (laughs) As well as Amazon links to the books that we have read and will read, and you can click on those links and purchase that or something else from Amazon, and it gives us a little bit of change a little bit of scratch to support some paper some papes uh to support our podcasting efforts we'd greatly appreciate that you can also support our efforts by sharing those episodes out on social media like andrew said earlier uh, or using itunes to subscribe and if you do that we'd really appreciate if you rated and reviewed us like sea doodles did it's a great way for new people to find the show kind of bumps us up in their weird apple algorithms which i don't understand 
but it seems to have worked for us in the past, so help us have it work for us in the future. Yeah, and um, last week, or maybe two weeks ago, I don't even remember, we asked if there were any services that we aren't on that we should be on, and um, Eric uh, recommended Stitcher Radio, so I haven't I haven't looked into that yet. I haven't clicked that link, but it's, it is on my to-do list. Great. What, what book is on your to-do list, Andrew? Um, it is, this is how you lose her by Juno Diaz or uh, yes. that, did we, did we say that that was the pronunciation last week? I, that's what we um, said. I didn't. All right. I'll, I'll look it up in my research. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, I'm not sure if we're going to need an explicit tag for that one a lot, uh, or not. I, it's, it's turning out to be, um, it's a little ribbled. Explicit, it, it, it's, it's explicit enough and does enough sex stuff that we might have to to talk so about. So come it back next cool, week because so. this book does so enough we'll sex stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody. Um, do enough sex stuff and try to be happy. 